thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Chris, good morning. Good morning. I don't remember the story of the week. The story of the week is how you can stave off dementia by getting a little bit of help from your friends. Do you know the tune? Can you oh. sing? The, can you sing the tune for us? <laughs> I suspect I will. I get by with a little help a from my friends. You'll probably have that as an earworm today. Um, no, I a, love it though, so it's not a bad one to have as an earworm. No, it's all right, and uh, and a good a good message in there because what uh, Liz Kirby, who's a researcher at Ohio State University, is saying this week, she's got a paper out which is in the journal Frontiers in Aging Neuroscience. She's actually tried to address this question, which epidemiologists, people who study populations at a big level, have been telling us this effect is there for years, but we weren't really sure which way round things work. In other words, people who have big social networks, they sing in choirs, they play musical instruments, they go to church, they have loads of friends over, they socialise a lot, they have a much lower risk of dementia than people who have a lower social network score. Now, is that because people who are demented or have uh, age-related cognitive decline tend to eschew company and they don't socialise very much? Or is it that having that big social network reduces your risk of developing cognitive decline with age? And that's what she wanted to find out. And she's done this series of experiments on mice. And what she does is either take couples of mice, so you take an old pair of mice. These, these are really ancient mice. They're a year and a half old, which for a mouse is, is very elderly indeed. She puts a pair of mice together in a cage, or she puts them into the mouse equivalent of an old age retirement village where you've got seven or eight of them all living together in a cage. And then while they're in that context, they do various memory tests on them. They test their ability to remember the way out of a maze, also novel novel object recognition tasks where you put them in an environment with some objects and then you move one of the objects and you see if the mice notice. And the trend that strongly emerges is that the animals that are kept in big groups, the groups of seven, which is the rodent retirement village setting, they do much better on these memory tests consistently than the animals that are just kept in pairs. And when they look at the brains of these animals, the animals that are kept in big groups have lower levels of inflammatory changes in their brains, probably consistent with stress, we don't know, but they seem to have lower levels of brain attrition because of this inflammatory effect when they're kept in big groups. So this suggests to us that actually being in a big group, perhaps the cognitive exercise of having to interact with people, individuals, language exchange, keeping up with the Joneses, working out what they want, thinking about uh, how to reply to people. That sort of stimulus is brain exercise, which appears to keep us cognitively fitter into our old age. So she's saying, when you're planning your retirement, don't eschew company. Try and plan your retirement around maintaining your contact with people. And even as your mobility may decline a bit, because this does appear to be extremely good for your brain ageing.
This sounds so fascinating with millions of questions. Can I just ask one before we go to the callers? So I'm thinking, and forgive me, you know, I'm just a little BA student, but but I'm thinking yeah, if part of the basic intuition is that in a group you get to exercise the brain like you would maybe say a muscle, if I can use a, a weak analogy, uh, Chris. I wonder if I was to live alone or if I was um, the pair of mice rather than in a group of mice, if I had other stimuli, however, could they do the same? So, for example, if I read lots of literature, even though I'm a lonely figure who don't socialize a lot, could I get similar kinds of stimuli from other sources, not necessarily humans? Well, one has to bear in mind that we don't know, for example, what role exercise plays in this as well, because we know exercise is extremely good for your brain. It encourages the birth of new nerve cells. And it might be that living in a big group of seven or eight mice increases the amount of exercise you take, although they did try and control for that because they said the mice weren't any fatter or thinner, which they would be if they were being more sedentary or less sedentary. At the same time, humans are all different, and some of us are loners. Some of us like to live on our own and retreat into our own our man or woman cave and read books and immerse ourselves in the internet for a while. That, that's stimulation as well, so it's important not to generalise too much. But what does appear to be a consistent trend for the average person is that social contact is important. Now, that's not going to be true for everybody. So there will be some people for whom actually that's a, a very stressful and unpleasant existence, which, which will make life feel like you're living forever, even if you're not. So it might not suit everybody, but for your average person, it probably is beneficial to have more social contact and a bigger social network. Fascinating. Sue, our first caller today. Welcome to the show, Sue. Hi, good morning. Good morning. Go ahead. What's your question for Chris? Thank you. Something that I saw here on the farm where we live in the Western Cape, which I can only describe as a white rainbow. It was the shape of a rainbow. It was when there was a bit of moisture in the air, but it was plain white. And when it disintegrated, it sort of collapsed in on itself, if that makes any sense. Oh, wow. Chris, have you ever encountered something like that? Well, I have seen some rather strange cloud formations. And good morning, Sue, by the way. You don't mention how high this was in the sky and therefore whether it could well be a cloud formation because obviously one of the things as uh, people who live at the southern tip of Africa now uh, are well familiar with is the exigencies of the weather. You're right at the forefront of being battered by all of the weather which comes from the very far south and Antarctica and so on. There's a lot of warm ocean, a lot of cold ocean, so there's a lot of air mixing that goes on and a lot of wet air mixing a lot of dry air mixing with a lot of dry air so i i think it's possible that what you could have seen was a cloud formation because when you get big masses of air which are saturated and warm hitting lots of air masses which are very cold you can get condensation very abrupt rapid condensation of the moisture into uh, something that looks a bit like a giant cloud all of a sudden so clouds will literally form where this this air masses is, is is intermingling i wonder if that's what you saw and it wasn't a rainbow it was actually a cloud but because it's obviously little water particles they're going to reflect a lot of light making it look very white thank you so much for your question sue let's go to park town corsi good morning hi eusebius um, Dr. Chris, I just want to find out this. It's cold, okay? So I just need to find out why is it that when my hands get terribly cold, my hands and feet, and then I get into the fire or warm water, they eat like I want to be hospitalized. <laughs> why is that a bad idea and why does that happen? I swear, I swear it happened. It happened. I got so cold. I went and I put my hands in the sink in warm water. It itched like I wanted to die. 
So <laughs> you need to find out why that happens and why is it a bad idea. I'm laughing out of familiarity, not laughing at you. And because I've done exactly the same thing and I know how excruciating this is, I suspect that uh, in the same way that if I make my, my hands very cold uh, and then warm them up quickly or my feet, I can get chillblains. The posh medical word for that is erythema perneo. It appears that there's a number of things that, that go on. When you make your peripheries, your extremities, extremely cold, the body responds to preserve heat in the body by narrowing the blood vessels in those peripheries. So it limits the blood flow through your extremities. When you warm them up abruptly, then the blood comes rushing back to resupply this tissue which has not had enough blood flow for a while and therefore there can be other waste products and things in the tissues which is why you get this what's called a reactive hyperemia. You get an exaggerated circulation transiently. I suspect that when this happens, what it also does is it irritates a population of nerve cells which supply skin which selectively convey itch sensations and they connect to your spinal cord and say this patch of the body is itching, uh, trigger an itch sensation. And it's there as a defence mechanism normally because the kinds of things that make you itch are irritants and not just Jacob Zuma type irritants, but irritants like chemical irritants in the environment. And these things include parasites and things trying to burrow through your skin. So they're there for a reason, but they can be fooled into into being uh, activated by extremes and extremes of temperature can can trigger these nerve cells off. So I think it's probably a combination of the blood rushing back in, opening up blood vessels and also irritating this itch-selective group of nerve fibres. And I think some people are much more sensitive to this than others because there are people in the population who do get chillblains and do get something called Raynaud's phenomenon. Um, where you get uh, a very very profound constriction of your blood vessels in your extremities, very painful. That, and so I think probably you're, you're in the, at the end of the spectrum of people who get these symptoms more markedly than other people. Okay, let's go to University Estate. Ray, good morning and welcome. Morning. Hi, Eusebius and Chris. Uh, look, I was reading Arthur C. Clarke's short story before Eden, and it's set in Venus, on the planet Venus. Human scientists are leaving the planet and they leave behind their refuse and waste. And an emerging life form, a plant, oozes the rocks under which this is all buried and starts feeding on it. And then Arthur C. Clarke says, uh, the most precious of all foods was needed, phosphorus, the element with which the spark of life could never ignite. What is it with phosphorus? I've never heard this before. Ah, good morning. Um, What an interesting quotation, because, of course, we're seeing this playing out. We reported a story here on uh, 702 a few months ago where researchers published a bacterium which is capable of degrading PET, one of the commonly used forms of plastic, and that bacterium had been discovered in a waste bottle recycling plant in Japan. It was a bug called Idionella sakaiensis, and it happens to have an enzyme which they've dubbed PETase, which can break down plastic. So in other words, if you, if you put loads of rubbish in a place, eventually life will find a way to tap into that and use it as an energy source. But where phosphorus comes in and why the world actually faces a phosphorus shortage is that phosphorus is absolutely critical for our DNA. In order for cells to grow, they have to copy their DNA. And DNA has a backbone of sugar molecules linked to phosphorus and linked by phosphate uh, groups. So you cannot make more DNA without a steady supply of phosphorus. And so phosphorus is often the rate-limiting 
reagent or chemical in growth. And so plants and, and farmers know this very well. Farmers put this on their soils in order to get good yields from their crops because plants also have their growth retarded if they don't have enough phosphorus. And then the plants take up the phosphorus and then when we eat the plants, we get the phosphorus that way. You lose a little tiny bit in your urine. But that's why phosphorus is so important. It's absolutely fundamental to DNA and its chemical relative RNA, which is what underpins all of our molecular biology, our genetics. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Oh, see, good morning. My question is uh, regarding uh, food labeling. Mm-hmm. If you look at quite a few food labelings, you find um, the inscription there E627 or E150, uh, and, and so it goes on. Um, my question is what does that mean, and uh, how carcinogenic are these additives to food? And uh, two, Pasteurized milk. In my days, you food, uh, milk used to get uh, sour, ten sour in a day or two after you have bought. Now it goes on for uh, four months um, down the line, <laughs> and uh, you are guaranteed that it doesn't get uh, off. And mm. this is what is exactly what is happening. Mm. And then it goes on to label that uh, not formulated for infant feeding. Um, can you explain that? And in particular, mm. why, how carcinogenic are these things? Seeing okay. uh, the cancer seems to be out of control mm. of late. Thank you. Thank you, Bokosi. A wonderful set of questions there, Chris. Yes, well, first of all, let's look at these E numbers. These are numbers which designate chemicals, substances which are added to foodstuffs. Just because they're added doesn't mean they're not natural. Vitamin C ascorbic acid has an E number. So those numbers designate the presence of certain substances added. It doesn't mean that they are harmful to you. And in fact, they're they're definitely not in many cases. The reason researchers, food producers, manufacturers might add E numbers like vitamin C to a food is because vitamin C is an antioxidant. And part of the degrading process as food goes off is to oxidise various foodstuffs, especially things like fats, and they taste nasty. If you add antioxidants, then those things get in the way of the things that would be doing the oxidising, soak up those reagents and stop them oxidising the food so the food doesn't taste nasty later. So it tends to have a longer shelf life or it stays in good condition and pleasant to eat and consume for longer. Uh, That's one example. Other forms of these E-number additives are colours. So you might add a fruit dye to give food a red colour. Beetroot contains anthocyanin, for example, and that's a deep red colour. That has an E-number, and you can add those anthocyanins to food to impart those colours. So they're not necessarily harmful, but at the same time you should read the label and see what's in them. Now looking at milk, this is an interesting one. The the question about um, why it says not for infants is that The milk you're buying from the supermarket is, by and large, cow's milk. This is a different combination of nutrients, which are ideal for a growing calf. They're not ideal for a growing human. Breast milk from a human has a very different composition, different amount of fat, different numbers of sugars, some other things that are in there, which are not present in cow's milk and vice versa. So you can get health problems if you were to feed a little baby on cow's milk as though it were human milk, it would end up with problems. Often there's not enough iron there and there are also chemicals in cow's milk that can soak up iron and the baby could become a bit anemic, for example, low red blood cells. So that's why they warn you this is not 
an infant formula, it doesn't contain all of the micronutrients in the right context and in the right proportions that a human developing infant needs. So don't use it as such. Fine to give it as a top-up or to give it with other things. Don't use it exclusively is what that means. And pasteurization, invented by Louis Pasteur, that process involves heating milk transiently to more than 60 degrees for a period of time to kill off the microbes which are naturally present in milk and which would degrade milk by oxidising various things in the milk and turning it into cheese. If you kill those microbes, the bacterial burden in the milk is lower to start with. Therefore, if you keep the milk cold, it should, because it contains less contamination to start with, go off more slowly and therefore it will last longer in the fridge and, and it won't be, you won't be drinking cheese on your cereal. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Clara, good morning to you. Hi. Hi. It was quite interesting hearing um, little snippets at the end of your last segment about milk. Um, my question is actually about expressed breast milk. Mm. I came across something last night, actually, about high lipase in expressed breast milk and actually causing it to kind of go off or go bad when kept in the fridge. And breast milk should, I think, keep for about six days without problems. I've been exclusively well, pumping for my baby for the last sort of 17 months. And I think we go through quite quickly, so it never really gets the opportunity to, to, for that to happen. But a few months ago, I did notice when he was going through a hunger strike that my breast milk wasn't smelling great or, or tasting great. And my question is really just, has, uh, have you heard about highlight it before in breast milk. Do you know how that happens and is there any way of preventing it? Because it seems that the way to treat it is by scalding it um, as soon as you've expressed it. But I'd just obviously like to know if there's a way of getting around that, if it's diet or, mm. you know, what causes that highlight in the first place. Okay. Hello, Claire. Chris? Um, right. The, the bottom line is that uh, fresh is best with anything. Uh, we all know that. And so if there is a way of uh, not having to store things, then they tend to be better. And the same goes for breast milk, because this is a living tissue when it leaves your body. It's been made by the glands and glandular tissue in the breast. There are cells in there, there are other chemicals which are added so that the milk is ready to use, it's pre-warmed and it's in just the right uh, sort of context as it were chemically for a, a baby to absorb those nutrients and use them now the longer you store something the longer opportunities there are for other chemical reactions to happen for cells to break down uh, that are in there because there are some cells in there release various enzymes which are in those cells which will break things down and there are also things that the breast secretes to get the milk ready so that it's going to be used there and then and the, the human breast has not evolved with putting something in the fridge in mind or putting something in the freezer. That said, um, breast milk is still going to be better than having some other alternative, which is, which is not breast milk. So um, it's a balancing act. And one shouldn't feel you, you beat yourself up because uh, you've had to store some breast milk. That's perfectly reasonable. Breast is definitely best. But at the same time, the idea that giving the stuff as fresh as possible with the minimum storage time is also the best approach. So if you can minimise the storage time, you'll have the best outcome. But you'll still have a good outcome if, uh, if you use it having kept it for a little while. But don't keep it for too long because obviously the longer you keep anything, the greater the risk of other chemical reactions going off which spoil the flavour and the taste, damage some of the nutritional value and it might become infected. And then you could give your baby an infection which you don't want either. I'm loving your tweetable insights today, Chris. Breast is definitely best. Yep, breast Naked is best. Definitely, definitely the case. Always the case. <laughs>
Hi, man. Good morning. I've got a question. The different races on the planet, the Indian people, the Chinese people, the people of Africa, the Europeans, uh, the white race, why do some of the races, all the people are born with the same color hair and eyes, whereas uh, most of the white race, they are born with different color hair and different color eyes? this to do with the DNA or is it to do with anything else? Did you get that, Chris? I did. And the thing is that the reason we look the way we do is absolutely dictated by our DNA. And the DNA you actually carry is dictated in turn by the environment in which your group of people have evolved. It's only in the modern era that we have aeroplanes which are ferrying people from one side of the earth to the other in under 24 hours unless you're on virgin and then you you know they, they probably won't arrive with any luggage or anything they treat me abysmally but anyway in the modern era we're very very mobile but historically we weren't and populations were born and died in the same geography pretty much and that meant that the genes that you carried and the genes that made you successful as a group and a race and a population were selected enriched and concentrated on your particular patch of the earth. And so that's why certain traits got concentrated. There's a very good reason why people who are Chinese look that way. Those genes would have given you a particular set of characteristics that meant you were successful in that environment. Now, if you look at places on earth where it's very, very hot and sunny, having dark skin, having dark hair is a massive bonus because sunlight contains ultraviolet and ultraviolet will actually break down folic acid in your body and folic acid is absolutely critical for the formation of new cells and if a woman does not have enough folic acid and she gets pregnant then she has a baby an increased risk that her baby will have a neural tube defect something like spina bifida so having dark skin in a very hot place is extremely beneficial when you go up to europe you end up with places like my country where the sun doesn't shine for half the time. Um, Well, even when it should be shining, it uh, is very, very weak. And so if you have dark skin, you don't have a folic acid problem anymore, but you do have a vitamin D problem because the ultraviolet also creates vitamin D in your skin. So then you end up with bone problems and calcium problems. So people in Europe then evolved to have whiter skin because they could then access more vitamin D being synthesized in their skin. The loss of the dark pigment, which is a very dominant pigment and would mask other characteristics, unmasks other coloration, which is in the skin and in the hair. And you end up with other forms of melanin, one called pheomelanin, which is very yellow, being in your hair, so you see blonde hair tones. And also, um, because you actually have lighter skin, you can see a broader range of skin tones because you don't have that very strong production of melanin, which would overwhelm and mask those other underlying colours. That's why you tend to see this apparent increase in diversity when you're outside of Africa, but genetically... Africans have the greatest genetic diversity of all races on the earth. Fascinating. Thank you so much, Chris. Have a lovely weekend. Thank you very much, Eusebius. Thanks, everyone. Great question. See you next time. Bye-bye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.